Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast brought to you by Forget-Me-Not Productions. I'm Clary Sadler, and so far on the series, I've interviewed a range of interesting individuals from all walks of life. These are individuals that I consider in some capacity to empower marginalized communities or speak on behalf of a marginalized group. On this episode, I'll be talking to David Richards, David is a retired auditor turned substitute teacher. David also has cerebral palsy and would like to talk about his lifelong disability and the trials and tribulations that have come with it. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, how are you? How's Wales doing today? Yeah, Wales is is very cold, <laughs> as you would expect for January. But, yeah, but... little snow flurries here in New York. Oh, okay. Oh, great. Oh, no, we haven't seen any snow yet. (laughs) Oh, I guess for our our listeners over here in the UK, would you mind introducing yourself? You know, maybe just describing who you are in a Um, nutshell. um, My name is David Richards. um, I'm 62 years old. I live in Whitestone, New York. Um, I'm a retired auditor for the state of New York. Now I do substitute teaching. Um, I work at a public schools like two or three days a week. Um, my hobbies, I love sports. I love traveling. I like art. I played sports my whole life. Um, I was born with cerebral palsy. Um, it was diagnosed six months after I was born. My, my parents realized something was wrong, so they took me to a doctor. And they diagnosed me with cerebral palsy. Um, I used to wear leg brace and arm and an arm brace. I, I'm going to go back to it. Um, I've had a lot of trials and tribulations with it, um, as far as like adjusting and people not recognizing people um, looking down on it. Um, it's it's been tough. I mean, it's still tough. And I still feel. Like people look down on it, but I've persevered and um, I think I've done a really good job doing it, but it's, it's been tough. It's been tough. And um, some people recognize, some people understand, but some people don't understand. Um, I have a mild case of cerebral palsy. It's not, it's not really bad, but people... People think because I have a mild case that I really don't have a disability because mm-hmm. it's—I mean, I do a lot, but it still gives me problems. And I, you know, wish people would understand that. Um, but I'm—I'm I'm pretty healthy. I'm pretty active, which I'm really thankful for. And um, you know, I've had a good life. So I met my wife a few years ago, and she, you know, it's been great. Um, you know, dating before I met her, it was really hard to date. Do I, how do you know, what do I tell a woman? Do I tell her that I have a handicap? Do I not tell her I have a handicap? If I tell them, will they go out with me? Will they not go out with me? It was a really tough thing. But, you know, I met my beautiful wife and that's all 2020. But um, it's, I'm, you know, it's, it's just been a struggle, but um, I persevered. I mean, you you um, sent me a message via our uh, Forget Me Not Productions Facebook page. So um, as you may have gathered from that, we're a sort of 
inclusive arts organisation that, I mean, primarily specialises in working within the field of disability arts, but we are inclusive, so we do work with a range of, I guess, groups that might be considered marginalised in some capacity. I know that's sort of a broad term, um, anything not mainstream, I guess, but I, I guess um, groups that we've tended to work with might be um, working class communities, um, you know, children from deprived areas, people with mental health issues, uh, people from you know, black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds. Um, I've also done projects that, like, focus on maybe someone's gender or sexuality. And we work a lot within the disabled community um, at, at sort of, you know, in a, in a specialist education sort of setting or even sort of at the other end of the spectrum working in nursing homes and residential care homes with older people, um, maybe with you know, conditions such as dementia or Alzheimer's or um, acquired brain injuries. So I guess our main, I guess, um, passion, if you like, is making specifically the arts, although we have done projects that have involved sport as well. But I guess that might be more in the sort of realm of like dance movement or... um, um, you know, something movement-based, um, street dance and street sort of capoeira dancing we did once as well. And I found, you know, working with um, the disabled community, I won't say the most rewarding, but it's like you said, there's not one, like, disability badge that fits all. It's such a range and it's such a spectrum and such a rainbow of of abilities within that and challenges and things. So I guess, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit in the introduction, but what would you say the most common issue that you have faced? You've mentioned it a little bit personally about when you've tried to date before, maybe like professionally, did it impact you when you did your first job as an auditor or as a substitute teacher now? Has it has it been a challenge or a barrier? When I, I worked for the state of New York as an auditor, and I um, and I was afforded a reasonable accommodation, which means that the work conditions um, were tilted towards my favor in certain areas. Um, ramps, I had to go. I had to, you know, I mean, I had to make sure that I was in order to. I ordered nursing homes, okay. so I had to make sure that there were ramps on the, you know, going to the nursing home because it's very hard for me to walk up steps. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I I had um. They have this thing in New York called a Cesaride, where you they have they pick up disabled people and take them to places. So I had them take me to work because otherwise I would have to take the subway, and I'm not very good with standing for a long amount of time, and I'm not good with being you know with a lot of people right near me because mm-hmm. it affects my arm as far as I need my space because mm-hmm. I have a lot of tension in my shoulder. So if I'm near a lot of people, it's it's really tough for my shoulder. So yeah. I, you know, they did that. So I, I I used to take a bus to work instead of taking the subways. Yeah. Um, as you know, as far as substitute teaching, um, they have been. I usually go to schools that have elevators because it's very hard for me to walk up steps. I mean, I I did that for a, a short amount of time and it was very painful for me. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I was working on like five flights of steps, you know, to, to get classes, to be, to get kids. And that was really tough on me. But um, I'm, now I find schools that have an elevator or no elevators, you know, just like a one level. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that helps me a lot. Okay. And, um, so, so do you find that, that people make an assumption rightly or wrongly about you when they first meet you or, or when they hear your story, maybe? I, I guess I do. I think people assume the worst. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, especially when it comes to kids, they, they think that, you know, because of my disability, I'm not going to be able to handle kids. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to work with them. I'm not going to be able to control them. I think, I do think people have an assumption when they see me that I'm not capable enough to work with kids, especially like if I work in a gym, mm-hmm. you know, like a gym environment, because, you know, there could be lawsuits involved or something like that. And I find mm-hmm. that teacher aides are very, 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 they assume the worst and they don't really know me as a person and they don't know the experience I have because I've been like, I, I have a degree in special education. So I, I've been in millions of classes, thousands of classes and I, and I'm not boasting. I think I know what I'm doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So, but people who see me for the first time, they, you know, they, Oh, I'm afraid this guy's going to get hurt, you know, because he has only an arm and a half. You know, so it, it, you know, it, it, yes, people do assume, and I don't think that's right. I mean, I can see from their point of view, but people don't always see it from my point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that, that hurts me. just to touch on that a bit more you know I mean first of all hats off to you for for being a substitute teacher I have a background in in um, education I was um, a secondary school drama teacher for I think I lasted about five years Uh, it was more a case of there wasn't work in the area that I lived in my specialism and I ended up kind of mainly doing substitute teaching work um, not that I'm putting that down at all. I think that is, you know, um, what substitute teachers do is just way above and beyond <laughs> what would be expected of a, of a, a regular teacher. You don't get as much, yeah. I don't think you get as much appreciation as a substitute. Yeah. I think, you know, you take it for granted, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah you know, we need someone to fill, in, yeah. fill yeah. it in and that's it, you know, but anyway. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I ended up subbing for about a year, um, which is, I eventually ended up leaving the profession and, and setting up the business that I do now just because, well, lots of reasons, but I think it was the substitute teaching part of it that um, really was the nail in the coffin for me just uh, because, I, you know, I didn't have a great experience. 
It's um, not easy. I'm no. It's not easy being a substitute teacher. You know, I, you you put, you put in a class with kids you don't know. You yeah. know, you have to you have to go on the fly. You know, you have to really like think twice on your toes. It's not an easy thing. <laughs> I guess I was wondering, like, what drew you, you know, out of retirement then, um, you know, you left that that one position that you had done, presumably for a long time. And and then, you know, now you work, you know, two, three days a week. Um, Did you have a period of no work or did you just kind of give that up and then go, right, I want to do this? I'll explain my situation. Hmm. When I was in my 20s, you know, I have a handicap. You can see my hand is... um, I wanted to give back to disabled people. So I volunteered for Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you ever heard of Special Olympics. Yeah, my I have um, my daughter's got autism and she's a swimmer and, and they, we were looking at uh, getting her to compete in the Special Olympics as well. At, Great at organization. Point. Yeah. Well, in my 20s, I wanted to give back to disabled kids because I just, I just felt like giving back and I volunteered for Special Olympics. And I did that for like five, six years. I trained kids. I I went away with them for, to state game. I went away all, all over New York State for that, and that and you know and that got me thinking that maybe I I would like to do that. I I would like to change careers and do that. Mm-hmm. So I went back to school in my thirties, and uh, I got a degree in special education because I I felt that was more reward. I was an accounting major, and there was to me that was more having a special major was more rewarding than an accounting major. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give back to kids because I wanted kids to have the same opportunity that maybe I, that I have. I wanted the kids to realize that they, they you know, they, they could have their dreams realized, you know, and they could see me as a role model. as someone who has a handicap, but has achieved a lot. So that was my goal in going back to school for special, for special education. It was my way of giving back to disabled people, and because I know where they're, you know, I know where they're coming from. Mm. So it was my dream. I guess it was my dream thing to to help disabled people. Yeah, I mean, to, to staying on the topic of of young people, um, you know, I think it's so important that young people see, you know, not just disabled people, but people from all walks of life that are you know reflected in society so you know particularly I mean you know I imagine where you find yourself placed while on substitute teaching roles is quite diverse I live in Wales um some some areas of Wales you can be lacking diversity and I think that you know that is partly why I'd like I like bringing and feeling empowered to bring um and passioned to bring marginalized stories to the forefront how important is it to you that um, you know disabled people specifically are represented, like more maybe within the school curriculum, like that we have, you know, um, international 
uh, Day of Disabled People recognised and marked within the school curriculum, just like uh, Black History Month is, or just like LGBTQ plus History Month is, um, or even, no, not just in the school curriculum, you know, just represented more full stop in, in the media, you know. I, I, I totally agree with that. I think disabled people have a stigma attached to them that they can't do this, they can't do that. And I think I think people have to be aware that disabled people can do a lot. And I don't think employers realize that. I mean, they see someone with a handicap, you know, they assume right away, oh, this guy, this man or woman can't do the job. So I think it's important. I think it's very important that handicapped people are represented, that handicapped people... Um, maybe have a day, you know, I mean, I, I know I have cerebral palsy and cerebral, they have a cerebral palsy awareness month, I think somewhere, somewhere mm-hmm. in the United States, but I think not enough is, I think it's, it's improving, but not, not enough has been done for the disabled people, for the disabled population. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I work with diverse, I work with Asian, I work with black, I work with autism, I work with emotionally disturbed. And, you know, I like it because it's rewarding when they get something. But, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen handicapped kids really, really bad, worse off than me with wheelchairs, mm-hmm. you know, arms flailing, you know, and, you know, it's just sad to see, but you have to give everyone a chance. Yeah. And, and people, people always don't, don't always do that. They just don't always give people with disabilities a chance. And that's not very, that's not right in my opinion. How do you feel? I don't know if you're familiar, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with the film, um, to get the title now, My Left Foot, I think it's called. I don't know if you're familiar um, with that film. It's a story, it's a story of um, someone called Christy Brown, who um, was, was a, a man with cerebral palsy, but they had... Um, Oh, I forget the name of the actor now. Was it Daniel Day-Lewis or... Yeah, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis playing this lead uh, of, um, of a man with cerebral palsy, um, wheelchair user. And I've had lots of conversations with uh, disabled actor friends of mine and, and um, a disabled playwright that's been on the podcast um, back when we first started, you know, talking about how we have such a you know, here in the UK, such a a wealth of disabled actors, very, very talented, that are, you know, are not getting the work and they are not getting the opportunities. You know, that's even on a small scale level. So when you get into Hollywood and sort of the, the, the big <laughs> the big um 
leagues, you know. Um, yeah, just, I guess, as a disabled man yourself, how does that make you feel that they didn't go with a, a disabled actor to play that and portray that role? I think it's terrible. I mean, everyone should, everyone should be should have their dream realized. I mean, mm. they, everyone should have what they want to do realized. Handicapped or not handicapped. And for me, that's terrible that when people don't get it, people are handicapped don't get a chance. I just think you know it's you know like I said people before like I said before people with handicaps they have stigmas. Labels, mm. you know, they have stigmas, or they have labels around them. You, you can't do this, you can't do that. You too handicapped to do this, but that's a lot of nonsense, in my opinion. I think you have to give people, I, you have to give handicapped people a chance. I mean, they told me I was going to be a vegetable. They told my parents, like when I was four or five, I was going to be a vegetable, and my parents like said, no, no, that's you know, they went to every doctor under the sun, and I, I turned out pretty fine, but. I don't think handicapped people get enough chances. I really don't. I I think I think it's a it's just terrible. It's just horrible. I just think you know it hurts me that people uh, 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 you know don't get chances when they should get chances. Yes. And, and, and whether it's an act, an act is a great profession. You know, it's a very beautiful profession. You know, I mean, you know, I don't think it's. I, don't, I think it's a horrible thing. I mean, I remember there was a baseball pl- I'm into sports, a really mm-hmm. big summer. And in the 90s, there was a pitcher who had one arm pitching. Mm-hmm. His name was Jim Abbott. He was, And he threw a no-hitter. In, I mean, you know, so it goes to show you he had one arm and he was pitching in Major League Baseball, which mm-hmm. is incredible. Yeah. I mean, incredible. And, you know, it goes to show you what, Handicapped people could do if they give if they're given a chance, but they're not giving a, they're not given enough of a chance, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, if we could stay on the topic of sport, there you said that you you, you know you're big into sport. Do you, you bowl? Is that right? Do you you play tennis? Play tennis. I used to play basketball mm-hmm. in a league. I used to play so I used to play baseball. Yeah. And what what I would do is I would catch the ball. Have the glove in my left hand, catch the ball with the glove in my left hand, take the glove off, take the ball out of the glove, and throw. You know, mm-hmm. to like wherever I had to throw. Mm-hmm. So I'm active. I my 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 parents stressed to me to be active, and to, they got me involved in sports at an early age. I remember playing when I was like eight years old. So it, it's been my mantra throughout my whole life is to play sports. Mm-hmm. So I used to play baseball, I used to play basketball, I used to play softball. Uh, I never, I never did hockey, I never did football, but I, now I play tennis. I do this new thing called pickleball. It's like a small mm-hmm. version of tennis. I do bowling. So I don't let my handicap get to me. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm, you know, I don't let it get to me because number one, I think exercise is good for you. Number two, I'm, I'm competitive or anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I. I don't let it get to me, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I just plug along, you know, I just, uh, you know, that's just me. It's just my mentality that, that I'm going to try and do as good as I can with my handicap as best as I can. What do you think is the biggest barrier for someone to get engaged with sport if they've got a, a disability? Like, is it, 
Is it other people's reaction to them or is it the barrier they put up themselves that they can't maybe do it? It's a, good, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, I think it's a combination of both, but I think it's more that people put up this barrier when they see a handicapped person. I remember one time, I'll give you an example. I was near my house and there was a softball game going on. And they, mm-hmm. they needed, I think they needed another play because they were short a player. And I volunteered. And once they saw my arm, they said, oh, we don't want you to play. We don't want you to play. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's more the fact that people put barriers up than people, like, hitting up people putting barriers up themselves. I think it's yeah. a combination of both, to be honest with you. But I think it's more that people put barriers up against handicapped people. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned you, you're qu- quite creative as well. You enjoy art. I can see some, some pieces on the wall behind you, which are very, very nice. Um, <laughs> can you tell me more about your creative process and how you get around any challenges you might find uh, due to your disability and, and your, uh, your arm? Okay, well, my right arm is affected, okay? I, I can't hold things very well. Mm-hmm. It's, more, it's more functional than anything else. So everything I do has to be on the left side. Yeah. Like if, when, I'm, when, I'm drawing, when I'm painting, the water's got to be on the left side. The paint has to be on the left side. This has to be on the left side. That has to be on the left side. Because for me to cross over and do it the right side is very, very, very difficult. You know, it's like I'm turning my body, you know, to the other side. And, you know, okay, it's okay once in a while, but to, to do it constantly is very hard. Mm-hmm. So every, for me, everything has to be on the left side for so it's easier for me to get to. Um, you know, like if I have to cut, if I have to use paint, the, the, the plate's got to be on the left. If I have to use water to rinse it out, it's got to be, everything's got to be on the left because it's very hard for me to do things on the right side. Mm-hmm. Um as far as painting, I mean, it's hard for me to hold the canvas. So, you know, I, I, maybe I don't have as good as strokes as other people. You know, like, you know, I, I only could use one arm. So it's hard for me to hold on to things. Mm-hmm. So I don't get maybe the texture or the quality of, of someone who, who has two good arms. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Um, that's it for now. Um, I think that's it. I mean, do you do it as, is it like a therapeutic sort of 
outlet for you? Do you do it or do you show your work anywhere or is it just for sort of for, for you personally? Well, I mean, for me personally, I think it's an outlet. I love doing it because mm-hmm. I, I, like, I love painting. They have these paint nights in the States where you go to different restaurants mm. and there's a leader and she shows her painting and you have to follow it. And she does it, and I, I just like it. It's a, I like art. It's very expressive. It's quiet. It's calming. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no noise involved. It's just you and the canvas and painting. So for me, it's more personal and more. Is it therapeutic? Yes, in some ways it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it just um, it um, it relieves the tension. You know that I have to deal with every day, the tension of living with a handicap. So yes, in your in answer to your question, it is therapeutic because it helps me to relieve my stress from my handicap. Because I do have stress every day from my handicap. Um, what about? I guess if you were to meet, you know, someone in school, someone that one of your students, um, and they may be interested in pursuing, you know, a career or a hobby in in sport in in art but maybe they fear their disability will hold them back. You know, you've said you want to be a role model. What advice would you give to them if they if they say, but I can't because I'm in a wheelchair or I can't because I'm visually impaired? Well, I, I wish I would share with them my experience. I mean, my parents told, the doctors told my parents I was going to be a vegetable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty serious. And if, if I tell them that and they see what I'm doing, or if I show them that I could play a sport or I could do art, I think that could inspire people to follow their dream. I think showing people what you could do inspire them. And I think words can inspire them. You know, I'm my father used to always tell me, you have guts. That was his favorite word to me. And I could tell, I could tell people like you have guts, you have grits, just, you know, using a wheelchair every day, you know, that, you, you know, you have guts just being out in the world. So I could, I mean, I could transpose those words into action for them, possibly, mm-hmm. you know, say, oh, you could do it. I know you could do it. I think for me, um, being positive with handicapped people is a, is a plus. Mm-hmm. I think they respond to it greatly. I mean, I know I respond to it. You know, if, if people give me a compliment, Say, oh, you're doing a great job. You know, I know you have this and this, this, and you're doing a great job. But I think if I could import that wisdom, like you're doing a great job and look what I've done and you you probably could do that. I think that could go a long way in having handicapped people achieve their dreams. And how do you find, you've mentioned a, a bit at the start that, you know, yes, disabled people that get discriminated all the time about what they can't do rather than the focus being on what they can do. But you also mentioned that, you know, or implied that within the the disabled community, you're almost not disabled enough (laughs) to fit in there. How how is that sort of almost like a double discrimination there coming from non-disabled people and maybe the disabled community? What kind of... um, you know, what kind of instances of that have you had? Well, I mean, I can tell you right now, I I had a friend who told me that I really don't have a handicap because he sees me doing, a lot, I, I drive, okay? I play sports, mm-hmm. I do everything. So he, he told me, oh, you really don't have a handicap. 
And I was really, really hurt by that because I have a handicap and it may be small. It may mm-hmm. be minor. It's not a great handicap, but it's still a handicap and it, it affects me in every day. So that really hurt. They really, that really, really, really hurt me a lot when he said that. I mean, yeah. people don't, like I said, people don't realize people are not in our shoes, you know? They, yeah. they see people doing things and they say, oh, it's no big deal. I, I just wish people would show more compassion and more empathy towards people with handicaps, and they don't. I, I really mm-hmm. honestly feel that people don't show enough, and people don't ask. I mean, I, I kind of said people not ask because they're afraid to ask people, but mm-hmm. I don't mind people asking me what happened, you know? Yeah. Actually, kids in school ask me what happened. So I've lately I've told them the truth mm. and they, you know, they ask, you know, and they've been okay with it. Cause I think kids need to know the truth also. I mean, I don't think you should lie to them. You know, mm. I, you know, I think you should tell them the truth. And it's like, I mean, they're going to, as you know, when they get old, they're going to face people with handicaps. So, you know, why not, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to not tell them the truth. Yeah, so, definitely. I, I, you know, I just think, you know, handicapped people get a bad rap sometimes. We do, um, as a company, Forget Me Not Productions, work a lot um, using different assistive technologies. So it could be using, um, you know, adapted sort of um, mainstream software, you know, using a switch to turn on, for example, a kettle if, if an individual hasn't got, you know, enough use of their hands to be able to operate um, the small switch on a on a um you know a kettle or a washing machine that kind of thing but for an artistic point of view as well we will enable um for example um someone with a complex physical disability so maybe they have cerebral palsy and no um voluntary movement so we use um something called eye gaze i don't know if you're familiar with that it's a computer so it's um a computer that that operates by eye movements um and can i just say something yeah sure i um i did for sure have a volunteer for special cerebral palsy association in suffolk county which mm-hmm. is on long island and the director showed me around the art rooms there and it's amazing what these handicapped people will do i mean they put they put paintbrushes in their mouth Mm. You know, it's like, you know, they paint with them, you know, with the paintbrushes in their mouth. Like you said, the eye glaze. I mean, touching a button, you know, they could actually do a painting. I think it's, it's amazing. It's, ama- it's an amazing, it's amazing what technology can do. Yeah, there's, a, there's an artist called Sarah Ezekiel. She, um, she actually um, studied like watercolors and, and, and painted using pastels, watercolors and um, acrylics, I think. But she's got um, motor neurons disease, so it's a degenerative condition and she no longer has use of her hands. And she's learnt how to use eye gaze to paint. Um, so she creates all this work, all her new works of art of, over the last sort of five years using eye gaze. Explain, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can mm-hmm. you just explain what eye gaze is again? I'm not sure what it is. So it's... Um, in the case of this lady, she's got a like a computer, sort of a, like a large tablet sort of size or iPad size, 
that is mounted on her wheelchair and it's got a, a camera along the bottom of the screen that tracks eye movements. So wherever you look on the screen, your eyes are almost acting like the computer mouse. So um, communication aid users will communicate using a screen that they're operating with their eyes. I work with a young man, a, a musician that makes music with his eyes. And yeah, and, and this lady, I mean, look her up if, if you get a chance. Sarah Ezekiel is the name. And she, she, as I say, she used to do watercolour, but now she's sort of adapted and found a new way of working and she's creating more abstract pieces. But, you know, amazing to see what she can create, again, using her eyes. I guess I was wondering, um, I suppose, I mean, I don't know if you have needed any assistive technology at all um, to help you personally or professionally, but has technology sort of helped you in everyday life, um, particularly with your disability? Um, um, I'm trying to think. Um, I probably could use more of it. I, I'm still stuck in the old ages as far as using technology goes. I'm still like, I still have to get more adjusted to it. Um, I mean, I do, I do use a cane sometimes if I feel like, I mean, if I feel it's icy out and I don't feel safe walking without it, you know, by myself, I use a cane. I mean, Mm. I've used, you know, sometimes if I've done a lot of physical activity, my legs are not hurting. And mm-hmm. I use it, you know, so I use a cane. I mean, I, I have, I have a cane. I use a cane. Um, yeah. I, use, I don't use a walker too much. I've used, but I use a cane sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, pro- I, I really haven't delved into technology as far as helping me, but I know it can help me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there are things that I could do that I'm not doing that would help me as far as my handicap. Mm-hmm. You know, picking things up, you know, I just, to be honest, I haven't done a lot of research into this, mm-hmm. but I know there's probably things that could help me. And I, I would like to know because mm-hmm. I mean, anything that could help me is good. So if you know of anything mm-hmm. technology wise, CP, that would be great, but just the cane, but I definitely want to learn more about that. Yeah.
I mean, is like music making something you've ever tried or considered? What? I'm sorry. Making music or playing an instrument, is that something you've ever tried or considered? Well, actually, maybe playing an instrument, mm -hmm. like maybe a um, piano mm -hmm. or maybe a guitar. But yeah. I, 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 I can't do that. I can't play a piano. I can't play a guitar. Ah, but you, you can, you see, because uh, <laughs> there are organizations out there. You know, there's an organization in um, Scotland called Drake Music who have specially designed a um, guitar for a one-armed guitar player. So, <laughs> Really? Yeah. What's it uh, called? Drake. D-R-A-K-E. Drake Music. Okay, and they're located in Scotland, you said? They've got sort of... Um, They've got, they call them Drake Music Labs. They've got one in Scotland, one in Manchester and one in Bristol and one in London, I believe. So they've got a few all over the UK and they often get, um, they work a lot with professional musicians, but they do, do, they do community projects as well. It's not just professional musicians and they'll, um, you know, they will create a bespoke instrument. Um, there was a, um, a conductor that, due to their disability, lost um, hand function, and they um, created a head baton for them to conduct the orchestra really? with. Yeah, and there's the the, uh, the one-handed guitarist. They had a, a bespoke guitar made for them. Another one was um, a guitar that was adapted for someone to play with their feet. Um, yeah. Um, and there's a, a sort of, I know there was something in a, a prototype with a, um, a switch-adapted piano, whereas you press the switch, or there was a series of switches, and the switch um, activated several notes at once to make up a chord. So if you didn't have use of the right hand, but you did of the left, you could play, you could play a chord by just kind of having one switch that would operate several notes. So... I know that something like that was in development um, when I last looked into it. That probably interests me because I've been thinking about playing an instrument. That one arm, you know, a guitar for one arm sounds really, really good. Mm. So maybe I'll contact them. But um, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, because I, I, I like music too. But like mm -hmm. I said, I... I haven't tried playing one instrument because I know you really need two hands, two arms to play. But now that you told me about this, mm -hmm. I'll probably look into it more. And just to finish off then, because um, I normally in incorporate um, a piece of music within the um, each episode that maybe has a special uh, meaning or maybe has impacted um yourself or you know it could be a song important to you and your personal journey or something that reminds you of childhood or maybe a song that's special to you and your wife um is there anything specific that comes to mind i know i'm putting you on the spot now <laughs> I, I actually like this song um uh, billy joel mm -hmm. um it's a long song uh like seven minutes um sing us a song you're panicked piano man Ah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to, that song just inspires me because, you know, it talks about people who are downtrodden, mm -hmm. trying, to get, trying to get themselves up. And, I mean, you could relate that to handicapped people too. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, you know, you can relate that to Hannah. People, you know, because you, you know, Hannah Bayview could get depressed knowing mm-hmm. that they have to have these barriers, you know, every yeah. day. So I kind of relate that to me in a way. But I, I love, I just like the melody and I just like the lyrics and I like the meaning behind the song. It's a, to me, yeah, it's a great song. Definitely. Okay, I will be sure to include a clip of it um, at the end of this episode. Okay, well, thank you very much. Mouth Off is brought to you by Forget Me Not Productions. You can find Forget Me Not Productions on Twitter at one, that's the number one, underscore forget, on Facebook at Forget Me Not Productions, and on Instagram at Forget Me Not, all one word, all lowercase, Clary. That's Forget Me Not Clary. Join me next time when I bring you the final instalment of our bonus mini-series, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. In that episode, I interview Dave Arenga. Dave is a record producer with over 22 years of experience producing and mixing international hits for the likes of Manic Street Preachers, The Who, Wilco Johnson, Idlewide, Ash and Kylie Minogue.